0: Welcome to episode 103 of Breakout Culture. I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse magazine.
1: And I'm Ed Vasey, the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. It's amazing, Charlotte. We are 103 today. (laughs) In honour of that, we're delighted to have with us the eminent broadcaster, a much-loved presenter of the Today programme. Ten years he did it. Ed Sturton. He's worked in broadcasting for over 40 years. He continues to present Radio 4 programmes like The World at One, The World This Weekend, Sunday, and Analysis. He's also been a foreign correspondent for Channel 4, ITN, and the BBC. He's written lots of books, such as A Biography of Pope John Paul II, A History of the BBC, During the War, and Diary of a Dog
2: Walker. Makes me sad about 103, actually, <laughs>
1: that,
2: that list, I've but just, thank I've you. Just, I've just been for a dog walk. <laughs> It never
1: occurred to me to write a diary about it. This, it's it, this why I'm well, not a I,
2: writer. It was a kind of challenge, actually, and, and I really enjoyed it. Once you get into the swing of thinking, what the hell can I write about my dog this week, you'd be amazed at the strangest things that pop into your head. It was really good fun. And also, I have to say, it sold millions more than any other book I've ever written and paid for my daughter's wedding. Brilliant. Beat so the this, boat, is, then. Uh,
1: this is what you just... Basically, I, I'll do a year of recording my dog walks.
2: Yeah. Yeah, but you have to – I mean, I did, I did columns for the, the Telegraph, which was the basis for the book. So you have to have a sort of hook and, and, and either an event in the news or something you spotted on a walk or a conversation you've had. And, and once you're into that, you're away. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, because I do – at the Wantage Literary
1: Festival, we interview this bloke called Graham, who's a dog trainer. And uh, it's, it's obviously packed. I mean, I bring my dog, and she sits on my lap and we interview Graham and I've been invited back to do it again this year and it's very popular. But it's true. I mean, I always bump into Johnny Bowden on my dog walk.
2: Well, the, the, the crucial thing is is if somebody sees you with a dog, it transforms their <laughs> perception. So you're, you're, I mean, you meet women in the park. You're not predatory if you've got a dog. Mm. And, and, and you start conversations with people who might otherwise think it a bit dodgy if you approach them.
1: We better clear up the Eds.
0: We're going to clear up the Eds. Yes. And now we're going to I carry think you on. better
1: start referring to Ed S. or something. N-S, Ed okay. S., okay. Well, well, now we're right. going
0: to go on to talk about Ed S.'s brilliant <laughs> new memoir called Confessions um, <laughs> A Life Reexamined. It's already had superb reviews, and the book is full of insights into how the world of current affairs has totally changed. But along with that, and more interesting, so has Ed. It's a very compelling... Ed, Ed S. Ed S. Ed S, Ed. Ed S. Yeah. 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 It's a <laughs> well, compelling account perhaps, of Perhaps other Ed, Ed has too. <laughs>
1: well, <laughs> I, exactly. That's why it's so confusing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you have to... You're yet to write your memoirs, Ed V.
2: <laughs> that is very true. Yeah. yeah. Have you yeah. thought of it? Oh, I certainly have. And why, why haven't you done it? Because I'm too you. lazy.
0: Lazy-fazy. Okay. I don't say okay. too young. That would make us very cross. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, no, I'm too lazy. I should, I should just do it.
0: You should. You should.
1: Yeah, I think Ed- you just have to sit down and just splurge it out. But Ed S can um, illuminate us on that. <laughs>
0: Anyway, I'm ah. going to carry on for a minute then yeah. you know, cuz we're going to get onto your book. <laughs> Charlotte has written
1: her introduction and she's, <laughs> and she's going to deliver it.
0: I'm determined to look. So now this marvelous book <laughs> Confessions
1: Thank you. Book,
0: is a compelling account of Ed S's determination to reassess his life. was a pathetic
1: attempt to get a quote on the paperback, Charlotte.
0: And think about what he'd have done differently in the light of today's prevailing culture and in the light of the fact he has been diagnosed with terminal cancer about which he's completely open. Now, in his own words, the book represents a bit of a reawakening. And so, Ed, let's start with what all our listeners want to hear about, the appalling way you were sacked from the Today programme and the surge of public support that followed.
2: Yeah, I'm more famous for being sacked than than anything else (laughs) in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Who was the editor that sacked you? Um, well, oddly enough, the question of you know that you know that um, Poirot film, Murder on the Orange Express. Oh yes, they all when- they all did it. Well, it, it turns out that in my case, none of them did it. You know, there, there was a body, but nobody was prepared to own up to wielding the knife, the knife. And everyone told me how terribly sorry they were, what a great mistake it was. So, I, sort of, I mean, I think it kept something you'll be familiar with, Ed um, V, corporate, uh, collective cabinet responsibility. I mm. think that's, yeah, well, I think there was a bit of that about. Um, so, I did have a, a bit of an encounter with one boss in particular, which I recall in the book, when he was a bit surprised that I wouldn't shake his hand and I wouldn't say nice things on a press release because it's funny there's there's it was great belief sort of in the BBC I think that you you, if instructed to walk the plank you will salute smartly and do that without objecting Um, and it was a bit of a shock that I, I think that I did object but you know you know those moments in your life when you get complete clarity and you think do you know what I'm not having this and you kind of answer back Quite right. Was, well, I think I think when Ed S won't shake your hand, you know you've done something because you're
1: the most <laughs> polite
2: man alive. <laughs> That's really that kind. <laughs> but I mean, that was part. That was part of it. It was the expectation that just because you were polite, you were a soft touch. I felt. Yes. Um, uh, which I mean, it's it's like saying you've got to be rude in interviews, and, and that means you're a good interviewer. You can be incredibly rigorous and wheedle away at the truth without being rude to people. It seems to me. Mm.
0: And also, I love it at the end of your book where you say that Today, when you listen to today, <laughs> you think oh, quite a lot of the time you think I could have done that much better, and you know you could have done not think you know you could have done that much better. And I agree, we miss you on that program. <laughs> we haven't
2: you haven't we haven't actually told us the tale yet, Ed S. So tell us what actually happened. Oh well, I suppose what what happened. Um, I mean, I should just say on that point that you've just made, Charlotte, I have taken a great deal of ribbing from uh, <laughs> the current today today team, but very good natured ribbing. I suppose. Well, what happened? What happened? Happened what happened um it was completely unexpected i was um i got a, a call instructing me to come into the office and meet one of my bosses on a i think a wednesday evening and i was booked to talk at a literary lunch in harrogate on the thursday so i said i'm terribly sorry i can't see you then and i dropped him an email and said what's it about and nothing came back and you know that's slightly sort of um nervy feeling you get something sometimes there's something not quite right here anyway i gave my talk at the lunch Huge acclaim, great fun, much enjoyed, good lunch in Harrogate. And when I came out, there was a voice message on my phone which said this is was somebody who'd done an interview with me because when I was bringing the book out, he was going to run a piece about me. And he said, I see there's a story in the Daily Mail today saying you're about to be sacked to make way for Justin Webb. Is this true? So I thought, well, haven't. nobody's told me that, rang the boss, and he rather sort of shamefacedly said, Well, uh, yes, actually it is true. Which was obviously not a great way to learn that you were losing a job that you that you really loved. Mm-hmm. Um, and the I think the the fact that it that it broke the story broke in that way made people sympathetic. And I just got started getting these sort of hundreds and hundreds of emails, and the BBC did did too, saying they thought this was um, a shabby way to behave. Uh, Mm. So yeah, well, which it was, (laughs) unquestionably. I mean, of course, BBC can sack you if they want to. And I was on a contract, so all they actually had to do was not renew it. But I think people felt the way that it was done was, um, Mm. yeah, was not great.
0: And what it. was their
2: reason? Well, the formal reason was perfectly simple. They wanted, you know, Justin was coming back from the States and they wanted to give him a job on the Today Programme. So you had to make a space. I mean, that was... But the real reason, I don't really know. I still haven't found out.
0: And your children did a whole Facebook they thing, did. didn't they? did. Wasn't that's it, Charlie? adorable. Yeah. A
2: really nice. Launched a Facebook Facebook campaign. And some of the other Ed's colleagues put down a private member's um, motion, if that's the right technical term, in the Commons. And lots of MPs signed up. I mean, it's slightly, you know, sort of asking me to have my job back, all of which mm. was incredibly touching. Well, I guess if Richard Sharp goes, you can apply to be chairman and fire. Do you know, I can <laughs> think of nothing worse than being the chairman of the BBC. It seems Now, to why be a- is that, Ed? This will, well, this will be our news story for the podcast. Well, it's not really <laughs> a news story. I mean, a number of reasons. The first is any idea that you have, I don't know, that you can... Tell me what to do if i 'm presenting the Sunday program on the world at one it's not like that I mean if you go into that job expecting to direct editorial policy or um, mm. the way interview, it, it, it's it's not it's, it's not that sort of job really you're you're well removed from the the shop floor where all the fun happens yes. well what do, i mean Ed, what, what, in your in your previous life as a minister what what do what do you think of that job
1: uh well it's one that politicians always like to play
2: with um yeah.
1: and we um famously appointed uh, well first of all we sort of uh, the existing chair who'd been appointed of the trust had been appointed by the previous labour government so he sort of saw the right on the wall and very kindly decided not to seek a second term and then we appointed chris Patton, which was clearly a political appointment although chris is obviously on the left of the party and it didn't really work out weirdly the reason it doesn't work with someone like Chris Patton, and this is very rude of me to say this behind Chris Patton's back, as it were, is I think if you do appoint someone like that, who's been used to, you know, running a department or whatever, and ask them effectively to have, as you say, this slightly less hands-on role, more uh, overall strategic role, it's it's very difficult for them to keep their hands off. You know, it's an outward looking role. You guard the BBC's independence from the
2: barbarians at the gate, rather than set about you inside the stockade. Really interesting what you say about Chris Patton, because in a funny sort of way, of whom I have to say I am a huge fan in all sorts of ways. Yes, um, absolutely. But I, th- I think he's been a very doughty defender of the BBC since he left the job, if you like, in articulating mm. its values and, and, you know, sticking up for it. So, yeah, it's weird. You would have thought he was a perfect chairman. In fact, he's been better at yeah. his BBC kind of beliefs or expressing his BBC beliefs. As not, as not chairman than he was as chairman.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, going back to what you were saying earlier about the the chairman being away from the sort of shop floor where all the fun happens, yeah. what kind of really sings out from this book is you really loved everything about your job, haven't you, from the beginning? You loved all the being a reporter, whether you are being sent off to find an escape prisoner or <laughs> whatever it was.
2: <laughs> I just... It's a uniquely privileged job. You're endlessly learning stuff, and that's... So exciting! I mean, here I'm in my, my mid-sixties, and I still, I still, I still get a huge buzz about of being on the air, which is partly because of the risk. You know, you may fall off, you may do something stupid, but it's always a buzz, and I still get excited about going places, talking to people, finding things out. It's um, it's unique, I think, as a career.
0: Can we talk about your buzz on the air for a minute? Because you write about how I think the turning point was when you had to go and report on a plane full of hostages from Libya and it sat on the tarmac (laughs) and nobody, no hostage emerged.
2: Well, I think that's actually when you know whether you are blessed to your surprise, in my case, with the gifts that you need to do that kind of thing. Um, It was a rainy night and the cameraman had forgotten his tripod so that the shot of the plane sort of as we wiggled a bit and every so often this hand would appear in front of the (laughs) lens and he'd sort of wipe it. (laughs) And and, and, and the only intelligent thing I had done was I'd prepared um, notes for the presenters and reporters when John Paul II landed at Gatwick a couple of years earlier on his tour of Britain. And so... uh, I thought, I'd better dig those out. They had all sorts of amazing facts about when the terminal was built and, you know, famous people who'd flown in and out of the airport. So I drew on those a bit. And, and of course, the, the other thing about that is that classic temptation that editors have, just stay a little bit longer because the event that you're waiting for in this case the hostages coming down the the um, the gang plan, the, the gangway um it, you know if you just stay another couple of minutes it's bound to happen and so it goes on and on and on and becomes grimmer and grimmer anyway i made it and that um i think with my boss transformed my reputation
0: you do talk in the book as well about you can talk live and you get this huge buzz out of it And yet you sound always incredibly calm and unruffled and authoritative. Where do you think that comes from?
2: Well, a couple of things about that. One, in my very early days doing live when I was sort of in my early 20s, and I, I got sent to Washington when I was very young, and so I did a lot of live two ways. And I had this awful kind of nervous tick, a kind of fantasy that would... Enter my mind that instead of describing Ronald Reagan's um, latest budget or whatever it was, I would simply whip down my trousers and say, "You <laughs> know, f- forget about that. Have a look at this." <laughs> and, what? And it, well, and it was you know you know, you know is that in you know the that. memoir is that in the memoir <laughs> no. it, is. Is, it, it is it is. God! Well, but it's, you know, you know, when you're standing on a, on a train platform and there's just that tiny temptation uh, to jump, it was a bit like oh that. Oh my
1: God, Ed, where are we going with this? <laughs> I have to throw water on people. Okay. Oh God! Uh, say, okay. For <laughs> i Shut sit up, having you. lunch with someone and I'll be thinking, I wonder what would happen if I just threw my glass of water over them.
2: There yes, you are. This is exactly the same. The same thing. Thing. One oh day it will happen. One day it will happen. <laughs> Well, maybe one day I'll take my trousers down. Well, come on, Charlotte, you must have one too.
0: No, I really don't. I I feel rather deprived. You are. You're very small-minded, Charlotte. Yeah, I have no weird fantasy of taking my kit off on screen.
2: (laughs) Well, the point is it sort of, I don't know, eventually I mastered it. I mean, obviously I mastered it every time. but, but But uh, it was a roundabout way of answering your question, because it it takes a bit of time to get used to talking calmly on the air when actually chaos is all around you. Uh, But... but once you can do it and once you know how to sound authoritative, even when you're not, it's it's a, it's a huge release. And it's especially important when you're news reading on telly, which I did for a little bit, because you can hear in your earpiece utter chaos in the gallery and people saying, oh, God, we're about to fall off air or where the hell's that got to or whatever it is. And you have to remain totally in command and look totally calm at the camera, because the worst thing for a viewer or a listener is a sense that the the presenter isn't in control. That really upsets yeah. up, you know, unsettles people. You, you've got you've got to project a sense of control, even if you if you don't feel it.
0: And what about interviews? Because you're you're very funny about how John Prescott used to absolutely baffle you. You did. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, my favourite Prescott, it was it was a kind of joke by Rod Little, who was the editor then, you know, who writes in the Sunday Times yeah. now, um, because he thought that he uh, would get extra mileage out of the interview if you put Prescott, who was quite sensitive about class and quite obsessed with class, up against an alleged toff.
1: Um,
2: <laughs> and, it, and it it worked every time. <laughs> and And I think my favourite moment was when he turned around and said you're a terrible man for asking the questions and not giving the answers and i
0: thought
2: (laughs) hang on i i I thought that was my job (laughs) but i think there's a there is a serious point about interviewing which is sort of buried in your question that the, the 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 most important thing about interviewing is actually not your questions it's listening to the answers and i think you know all the really good interviews you hear um, Ed, Ed made a reference to George Entwistle um, a moment or two ago. The reason, in the end, he, he lost his job was because of an interview with John Humphreys. Um, mm, that's right. You remember? And it's, it's a masterclass to listen back to because John sort of goes in quite gently at the beginning. And, and as it becomes apparent that George Entwistle simply isn't in any way on top of the subject, mm. you, you can hear John kind of revving up Mm. And, and, and and you can sort of feel this man's career falling apart as, as it happens and, oh. and by mm. the yeah, end we'll say it was end, memorable yeah. yeah and but that's all about listening you know it's, it's all about not not just plowing on with your prepared list of questions it's about listening and, and mm. taking the interview in a particular direction when you get a sense of, of where the other person is going.
0: You're, you have great affection and admiration for John Humphreys, don't you
2: I do he's a great yeah. man. Yeah, He's a really great man and he's very clever. And despite that sort of irascible uh, persona, he is extremely kind.
0: Can can we talk a bit about um, Ampleforth now? Because yeah. one of the, you know, you know, this is a book where, where you are reassessing your life and, and thinking about how you think differently in today's prevailing culture, which has changed so much, and your whole attitude towards Ampleforth was forced to change wasn't it really by the revelations about all the sexual abuse. Tell us a bit about that because I thought that was a really thoughtful and interesting part of the book.
2: Well, the key moment, I suppose, well, not the key, but a key moment, was just after the ICSA report into Ampleforth came out, the Independent um, Inquiry into Child Sex Abuse, uh, was published. Um, I was out in the country playing tennis with an old school friend, and the other man of the... We were three couples, was also in Amplefordian, a very distinguished public servant, a knight. And we sat round at dinner, and our host was a very successful person in the city. So we were slightly sort of three old fartish clubmen, I suppose, and we said, oh, this this report into what was going on when we were at school, we, none of us recognised it. it. wasn't like that at all, was it? And we all harumphed a bit. And then there was a pause <laughs> in the conversation and the, the knighted public servant said, mind you, Father X did try to snug me and told me he loved me and I told him to push off. And that sort of set me on a journey looking back. Looking back a bit, uh, what the school was like when I was there and when all this was going on and looking back at my diaries and finding reference in them reference, that, that did suggest there was a kind of dodginess in the culture that I suppose we suppressed a bit at the time. The other really sad thing about that sort of reevaluation is that I was a huge admirer of Basil Hume. He, he used to come and teach me high jump in the afternoons sometimes. He was an incredibly um, sort of friendly and I think holy person and I followed his public career but when he became cardinal and saw a bit of him there and he sometimes may help me with Catholic stories and so forth and the report reveals that he he was guilty of one of these terrible misjudgments and that's a polite way I think of putting it of of allowing a monk who'd been accused of abuse and indeed who subsequently went to jail for abuse to continue away from the school but into some of the parishes that the monastery runs without telling anyone about it and you, and you sort of think does that change my view of of what a remarkable man um he was it it's just rather unsettling having your path past rewritten like that
0: mm. and and did it change your view i mean you you a lot of your views you say have changed it's so interesting
2: yes well i think if you don't change you might as yeah. well not bother don't you i mean i think uh you know again going back to my diaries of my Cambridge days I did conclude that um I was a bit of a prat and I think (laughs) you know all of us if we look back to some of the attitudes that we had then the snobbery the intellectual arrogance the certainty that we were right about everything all that stuff you look back and it was quite painful reading the diaries I mean quite funny too but quite painful So you must have been at Ample Force with Philip Knoll and, of course, with Rupert Everett. I was indeed uh, there with Rupert Everett. In fact, one of the moments I cite, which I found in my diaries, was um, uh, I recorded the debagging of Miss Everett, as I put it in the diaries, for being a a vivacious nuisance, (laughs) Um, which kind of tells you a lot about us, I'm afraid, and and about the attitudes of the day.
0: Can we just go back to talking about your your faith for a minute? Because it's 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 actually very lovely in the last chapter. You're you know talking about it, it's still a work in progress. But you, you say this rather wonderful thing about it's just a part of you that you live your life with a moral destination.
2: There, there were good there were good good things about a place like Alperforth, and, and really profoundly good things. And I think one of the reasons a lot of my contemporaries and it did me feel so sad about what happened, is that we also feel we got a moral compass and a moral way of looking at the world from being educated by monks who you felt brought with them the wisdom of the centuries. You know, whatever it is, 1,500 years of Benedictine life, 1,500 years of learning what it's like to live in a community, Um, and all that stuff we absorbed. And, you know, one of the ironies is, is that the monks gave us Precisely the values by which we now judge some of the things that they did, but it doesn't mean you lose those values altogether.
0: No, and you, there's a lovely bit where you talk about Gerard Manley Hopkins as well, and just yeah,
2: know. well, I mean, I, it's very difficult to talk about faith, isn't it? Because it's it's internal and it, it's not really um, something that can be explained with logic. But I suppose the only, the what I was trying to get across there was that sense that just occasionally um, a world with a, with a god that became man and and redeemed us just makes more sense than other stuff and and there's no point in resisting that feeling if it if it comes upon
0: you. But you in your last chapter you're really coherent about joy in your life. Do you think that that has been? Made more intense by the fact you are facing a life sentence from your cancer. The cancer, I suppose,
2: it perhaps it it does. Although I'm, I think you have two choices when you get um, a a diagnosis of an incurable cancer. One is to make it your profession, and the other is to live your life as far as possible as if it isn't there. And I think both are per- perfectly valid. And actually, it's much easier to choose the second which is what I've done if the prognosis is relatively benign you know prostate cancer doesn't kill you immediately I think if if you have a a diagnosis which means you're going to be dead in in six months you think about nothing else probably but you know it does become your profession and your life but I decided to do the opposite and treat it as a as a kind of um, intrusion and 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 a change in my life but not as something that dominates me so if if i do find um more intense joy in things it's it's not a conscious kind of seeking for that i suspect it happens quite quietly when you 're not noticing
0: i mean it's really it's a really wonderful book, and I highly well, it recommend it thank to, you it's fantastically readable and great fun as well I mean some of your tales and and you've done a lot of extraordinarily brave journalism as well Bosnia and all sorts of places
2: when you're young, you think you're invulnerable actually yeah,
0: that is true um, yeah.
2: and and I, I I went to all sorts of dangerous places and it, and it didn't occur to me until I very nearly did get shot it didn't really occur to me that I could I could die. In a way, the ones I really admire are, you know, some of the old war horses like Jeremy Bone and Lise de and so forth, who are still at it, um, and mm-hmm. and doing. And I have to say, I think doing brilliantly. I mean, I I think think the whole BBC Ukraine coverage, particularly in the early days when it was much more frightening, because everyone thought that the Russians were coming to Kiev, and you know, reporting from there seemed that much dangerous. I think the whole episode has been a great advertisement for the value of public sector broadcasting um you know much more valuable than a million speeches this is what it it
1: can do when it works i mean i think the war reporting from ukraine for many of the broadcasters has been um pretty uh, remarkable and vivid mm. and it is a very brave thing to be a war reporter and jeremy burn is a sort of iconic figure as is um john simpson yeah, uh, yeah. and kate AD of course and they are kind of still household names in
2: a fragmented media landscape. Yes. Yes. Um and, and had I mean John Simpson, I I was sort of his opposite number back in the back in the nineties and he's still at it. You know, it's it's amazing his his drive to keep going. Mm. That's incredible. Well,
0: I th- I think Lise Duset is quite extraordinary as well. She's I mean, brilliant, she's just always right in the middle of everything, isn't she?
2: Yeah. Yeah. In in radio terms she's a particularly uh in craft skills, in radio terms, she's particularly good. You know, she—you get a feeling of being there, of meeting the people, of the sounds yes. of the place. She she gets the intimacy of radio terribly well.
0: Yes, we're very lucky because you are still on the radio a lot. Well, thank you. Um, which and is, may um, I say what
2: a what a skilled interview you are, Charlotte. <laughs>
0: I will take that as the highest praise any I could possibly have had. I might swoon now. Anyway, Ed, you know, the book is wonderful. It's called Confessions, and it's absolutely marvellous. Thank you very much, Ed.
2: Great pleasure. Thank Thank you for having me. Thank you so much.
0: Now, as regular listeners will know, both Ed and I are great dance fans. And I've just seen a show at Sadler's Wells that blew my socks off. I'm anyway a Leonard Cohen fan and Ballet Jazz Montreal is now touring with Dance Me, a fantastic dance performance to everyone's favourite Leonard Cohen songs. The atmosphere at the end was so ecstatic that people were standing up and dancing. So it felt more like a rock concert than a dance performance. But most of it was beautiful, moving and poetic and I absolutely loved it. Unfortunately, it's on for an agonisingly short run. So by the time you're listening to this, there will be just one special performance of Dance Me Left. But it is on Valentine's Day and it will be amazing. So if you can get tickets, grab them now. The BAFTA Awards are announced next Sunday. So we're going to be talking to the BAFTA chair Krish Majumdar about the shortlisted films so cinema goers and movie lovers don't fail to tune in then
1: as usual you can find us at countryandtownhouse.com you'll find the latest digital edition of the magazine there as well as our sister podcast house guest Carol Annette who talks to some of the most fascinating and influential names in interior design we love your feedback so we want to hear from you if there's something you'd like to hear us profiling please leave a comment or email us on charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk see you next next week.